0: The <clears throat> title of this evening's talk is The Seamless Circle of the Parami of Generosity. And we'll begin with a brief discussion about the paramis. <clears throat> so what is a parami? <clears throat> The paramis are the accumulated forces of purity, and sometimes the word parami is actually uh, translated as the word purity—the accumulated forces of purity within the heart and mind. Every mind moment that's clear, free of greed, free of hatred, free of delusion. has a certain purifying force in the ongoing flow of consciousness. And each of us in our long evolutionary process has accumulated many of these forces of purity within our heart and mind. One of the root roots of the Pali word, parami, conveys... A sense of supreme quality. The word paramita, which is the same word in Sanskrit, paramita means going towards something. So going toward supreme quality, going toward perfection. In the Theravada tradition, there are ten paramis to be developed, and I'll just uh, list them, name them in Pali and in English. The first being dana, generosity. Second, nikama, renunciation. The third, panya, wisdom. The fourth, virya, energy or effort. <coughs> the fifth, kanti, which is patience. Saka, truthfulness. Aditana, resolve or determination. Metta, loving kindness. And the last, upeka, equanimity. As each of these Qualities grow and strengthen and mature within us. The accumulation <clears throat> of the qualities of non greed, which are generosity, renunciation, and patience, the accumulation of the qualities of non hatred, which are loving kindness, truthfulness, and virtue and the accumulation of the qualities of non-delusion, which are wisdom, effort, energy, resolve, and equanimity. As each of these qualities grow and strengthen in us, they become really very powerful, forceful energies, and result in all kinds of different forms, if you will, of happiness, contentment, and a sense of well-being in relationship to the most basic, worldly, sensual pleasures, all along the way through to the greatest, to the highest, most def- refined happiness of the awakened, the liberated heart and mind. The development, growth, and maturation of these perfections, these forces of the mind and heart help to counter the forces that cause us human beings such great suffering. Everything occurs, everything happens because of particular causes and conditions. Nothing occurs randomly or accidentally. The practices that lead towards developing these qualities in our lives, in our heart, in our mind, aren't to be undervalued or thought of as not really so important, not the real practice. This aspect of training the mind, of training the heart, is an essential, powerful, and necessary aspect of our practice of moving towards liberation. As these qualities grow and deepen and get more and more refined, they're incredibly powerful causes of all spiritual accomplishment. It's said that the ultimate perfection of the paramis is the perfection of all of the qualities of the mind, the heart, of a Buddha. The nature of the paramis can be understood as being of two basic aspects. The first being the paramis related to the purity of conduct, the purity of action, our way of being in the world. Conduct in its everyday worldly aspects, of being in the world. And these paramis are generosity, virtue, renunciation, effort, energy in meditation practice, truthfulness, and resolve to practice. The second basic aspect of the paramis is related to the purity of wisdom, of the purity of insight, understanding, both in relationship to everyday worldly life and the wisdom, the understanding, the insight of the deepest liberating kind. And the second, ac- the second aspect of the perfections includes the paramis of panya, wisdom, patience, metta, loving kindness, and upekka, equanimity. And of course, all of the paramis are interrelated and so bring each other to light over and over and over again. Our practice itself, in its process, is the practice and process of purification. the path of practice that leads one towards liberation, samatha, concentration, vipassana, insight, and other specific practices, such as the brahmaviharas are often called or described as the path of purification. The development of the paramis organically, naturally, occurs within the context of all and each of these practices. In light of those of you who will be soon moving from an intensive retreat setting out into the larger world, and considering our everyday life right here in retreat, in intensive, in this intensive retreat setting. Bringing the paramis more and more into the forefront of our daily life, here in retreat and in the larger world, can really be very helpful and fruitful. It can really be a very potent aspect of our practice. The paramis are, of course, to be practiced and developed for one's own liberation, but also for the benefit of one's family, one's friends, one's community, and for the benefit of the world. One aspect of the blossoming and potential perfection of these qualities of mind and heart is that there's something to work towards to practice towards benefiting others with no self-interest the mind the heart liberated from all self-centered concern so no greed no hatred no delusion which of course, without a doubt, is a great benefit for everyone and ourselves very much included in that. Traditionally, the practice, development, and gaining of the paramis is called the work or the affair of a noble person. And so, this evening, we'll look deeply into the parami of generosity, exploring the giving and the receiving that's inherent in this beautiful and essential quality of heart and mind, and beginning with the story. Quite a number of years ago now, when I was living uh, at the Insight Meditation Society down the road here, there were times when I would go to the Cambodian Peace, uh, Peace Pagoda Temple, which isn't very far from here, to pay a visit to my friend, Venerable Mahagosananda. And some of you may have known him or may know of him. His name translates as Maha, Great, and Gosananda, sound of bliss. And Maha, as he was fondly called, was from Cambodia and is considered to be the patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. He's probably best known for the Dhamma Yatras, the long step-by-step walks that he led, um, walks for peace, that he led through the Cambodian countryside and through the villages and the refugee camps during and just after the Vietnam War. Maha died some years ago at approximately 94 years of age and he'd been a monk for 80 years. Venerable Maha Gosananda was an incredibly glowing and energetically light human being. He felt like one of the purest and lightest beings that I've ever encountered. So simple, so unpretentious, really so rare. A being with a really quite truly unfettered mind and pure heart. A few years before Maha's passing, I had the great honor and great joy of teaching a three-day retreat with him in Crestone, Colorado. And during that time, a very sweet and deep connection came to pass between us. We didn't really know each other very well, and we hadn't seen each other for about a year, so I didn't know if he'd remember me. Being such an old man at that point, there were things that he didn't remember. So I recalled to him before the retreat, before we started teaching, I recalled to him uh, the last time we had met and asked him if he remembered me. And he said, Oh, yes, I remember your nose. <laughs> I I burst out laughing, actually, when he said that and and said, well, must be quite a nose. (laughs) And he said to me very directly and very sweetly, it's a good nose. (laughs) During a three-month retreat that I was teaching at the Insight Meditation Society, it wasn't too long after this Colorado retreat that I taught with Venerable Gosananda, I visited Maha at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda. And I felt like I was going to see my Dhamma grandfather, who used to call me (laughs) Mum. And at one point, um, I asked him why he called me Mum, when, in fact, I was so much older than he was. And he responded by saying, we've all been each other's mother at some point. And so, your mom. So that day, <clears throat> when I visited him at the Cambodian Peace Pagoda, mom and grandfather sat together and drank tea and laughed a little bit and talked <clears throat> a little history about his life, talked about the three month retreat that I was teaching and how everyone was just so diligently practicing. And mostly, we talked about the Buddha Dhamma. <clears throat> which was Venerable's favorite topic. Being wi- being with Venerable Mahagosananda was always a most precious gift that opened and lightened the heart, the mind. A gift he so selflessly offered, simply through his being, or maybe more accurately, a gift that he offered in just simply being. I found it quite amazing and surprising when I was with him and afterwards. My heart felt like it filled up my whole body, my whole being, and then would expand on outward. An experience that in fact would always continue on for some time beyond our time together. When I left the Cambodian temple that day, to my total surprise, two monks and one of the nuns that lived there with Maha filled the backseat of my car with large bags of Thai rice and big tins of jasmine tea and sacks of sugar for me to take back to IMS for all of the three-month yogis that were practicing there. They wanted to offer gifts of support because they were so happy that people were practicing the Dhamma. And so this exploration of generosity, this quality holding a special place and opportunity for all of us, in our formal practice, and in our life as our practice. And of course, one of the most profound acts of generosity occurred over 2,500 years ago when Gautama Buddha, directly out of his own experience, offered the teachings and practices of liberation from suffering. It's because of the Buddha's mind and heart of boundless generosity and great compassion that all of us are sitting here together this evening. And so moving from a very recent story regarding Venerable Mahagosananda, or a relatively recent story, to an old story, an ancient Buddhist legend, a tale that displays a number of paramis, particularly generosity, along with virtue and renunciation and wisdom, effort, energy, and resolve. And this particular uh, telling uh, of this tale is adapted from the same story, this tale, as told by Rafe Martin. It said that many maha-kalpas and world cycles ago, before our Buddha, Gautama Buddha, came to be, another Buddha, Dipankara Buddha, was to pay a visit to the small village of Amravati in India and offer an evening of public talks, revealing his Dhamma. While the villagers were very excited and very deeply honored. To show their great respect for the Buddha Dipankara, they decided to level out the whole length of the road that the Buddha would walk along through their village and then cover it with a fine piece of cloth. In the forest, just outside this village of Amaravati, lived a young man who was blessed with much goodness, physical beauty, intelligence, friendliness, kindness, and great virtue and vigor. He was the hermit Sumedha, who in a much later time was to be the future Buddha, our Buddha, Gautama Buddha. Sumedha's parents, wealthy Brahmins, had died just a, a few years before, leaving him with seven generations of accumulated property and great wealth. It said that young Sumedha thought, my family has am- amassed much wealth, yet neither my parents nor any of my ancestors were able to take it with them upon leaving this world. What's the point of amassing more? One day I too will die, as there's a road that leads beyond suffering in this world. Should I just remain idle? No, I'll leave this sheltered life, become an ascetic, and find the way. And so he announced his intention to the king, and he gave all his money to the poor, and he entered into the forest life of a hermit eating wild fruit and wearing clothes of bark, made of bark, and letting his hair grow long and matted. And he practiced very energetically, whether walking, standing, sitting, or lying down. Within a short time, he gained a profound insight into the true nature of things and bore a very bright wisdom which was never to be dimmed. He sat for many days, blissfully absorbed in his newly found sense of freedom and understanding. On the day that Deepankara Buddha was to visit the village, Sumedha was roused out of his deep meditation by all of the excitement and all of the activity in the town. It's said that, seating cross-legged, he rose up into the air <laughs> and flew through the forest until he came to the road. What's all the excitement? Why are you working in the midday heat? Why is the road being leveled and covered with golden cloth? Venerable Sumedha, replied the workman, Don't you know the Buddha Dipankara is approaching the village? Well, Sumedha's heart just leapt with joy. A Buddha, he thought. Rare is it even to hear the word Buddha. Rare is it beyond all comprehending to meet such a realized one. So he immediately came down from his airy perch and offered to help the uh, workmen with the road. And he picked a particularly swampy patch of very low ground to fill. And he worked with his heart and mind just filled with light and joy, repeating over and over and over again, a Buddha, a Buddha. But before he was able to finish his task, he heard exquisite music and chanting and saw flowers being tossed in the air. The Buddha Dipankara was approaching. It said that Sumedha saw multi-hued rays of light extending from the Buddha to Pankara and a great soft golden light surrounding him. And then he thought, here's one who has attained all wisdom. Here's one freed from all greed, all anger, all ego delusion, one in whom all goodness has been realized. I shall make an offering to the Buddha de Pankara in honor of all that he is. So Sumedha spread his bark cloth cape over the soft wet ground and then he lay down on top of it. And he loosened, spreading, loosened and spread his long matted hair. He made a passage of himself for the Buddha de Pankara to walk on over the mud. And then he thought, like the Buddha Dipankara, I want to help all beings. I'm determined. Despite all of the difficulties and danger, I'll never turn back. I'm resolved to attain what the Buddha Dipankara has attained and benefit all beings. Well, the next moment the Buddha, Dupankara, arrived at that very spot. And looking down at Sumedha, he knew this hermit has made the resolve to be a Buddha. He'll be successful. In many Mahakalpas and world cycles from now, he'll become a fully realized one, an awakened one, a Buddha, and his name will be Gautama. And out loud surrounded by hundreds of people monks nuns lay women men and children the buddha depunkara stated in many mahakalpas and world cycles from now this hermit lying here will fulfill his great vow he'll be a buddha named gautama and when he becomes a young man he'll see he'll see the four signs old age sickness death, and a monk. And he'll leave his ordinary life in search of the deepest truths. After great exertions and close to death, he'll receive a life-saving meal of rice milk. And then with renewed energy, strength, and vigor, he'll go to the foot of a bow tree, sit himself down and continuing his effort with great diligence, he will attain supreme Buddhahood. Well, as you can imagine, remember that Bhagavad was saying this out loud. So as you can imagine, Sumedha, lying there in the mud, <laughs> became del- with, delirious with joy. My deepest wish shall be attained. I shall be a Buddha, he thought. And the next moment then, the hermit Sumedha put his palms together, honoring the Buddha Dipankara, who did the same in return to the Bodhisatta. And then the Buddha Dipankara continued on his way through the village, accompanied by hundreds of followers from all walks of life. The Bodhisatta Sumedha arose from his bed of compassionate generosity and filled with joy and strength of purpose it said that he rose up into the air and returned to his forest retreat where he remained practicing hard towards his goal We usually think of generosity as the practice of offering but in its fullness it's really both offering and receiving, a process which clearly helps to purify and transform the contraction of separateness engendered by self-centeredness. The development and deepening of the Heart of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of greed, clinging, stinginess, hoarding, and saving. The development and deepening of generosity directly inspires and feeds the purification and transformation of the fear and the attachment that are so closely linked to the energies of greed and of resistance. Generosity, a perfectly natural aspect of our humanness, and universally recognized as one of the most basic human virtues. We offer. We give help. We receive, it's this seamless circle. Just as the bodhisattva, Sumedha, so diligently and deeply practiced, cultivated and manifested compassionate generosity, we also cultivate and manifest it in a thousand different ways no matter our culture, no matter our age, no matter who we are. I'm weeding and planting my garden early one summer morning many years ago, and my four-and-a-half-year-old son wanders over to my work area, and with a big, very bright smile on his face thrusts A bunch of bright yellow dandelions at me. Dandelions, for those of you that don't know English, they're flowers. They're considered weeds, but they're really beautiful. (laughs) And my little boy thrust a big bunch of them at me, and I received them with delight and with a great heartfelt gratitude. I happened to be in China on my 46th birthday. The friend that I was traveling with and I were staying in Shanghai in a two-room apartment with the Chinese family who were friends of my friend, good friends of my friend. The 20-year-old daughter of the family had admired my favorite bracelet that I was wearing. And I'd learned that in China, The custom is to give gifts on one's birthday. So in the midst of experience, a fair degree of clinging and attachment, (laughs) I decided to give my bracelet to this young woman for my birthday, though I felt uh, like a one-handed giver (laughs) during my consideration of doing this and then finally deciding to do it. Though actually at the time that I actually gave her the gift it was with both hands and actually with an open heart and really joyful at that point. Though in the process of getting there it was very, very much a practice of generosity for me. A dear friend of mine waited some years for all of the conditions to come together to allow her to sit a three-month retreat at IMS, at the Insight Meditation Society, and they finally do all come together. But just one week before the retreat begins, she calls me to tell me that she's given up her spot because a very dear friend who was dying of cancer had asked if she might consider being her caretaker. A young cab driver in Thailand and I have an inspiring conversation about Buddhism. And just as I'm getting out of his taxi, he takes the small bronze statue of his beloved Buddhist teacher off the dashboard of his car and gives it to me. And I hesitate momentarily. I'm not sure how to or even if I can receive this gift. And then my heart really just simply opens, and it's easy to accept this purity of generosity from this young man. A three-year-old Native American child from the Iroquois tribe sits in the middle of a circle surrounded by many blood relatives and extended family there are delicious foods and beautiful clothing and blankets close to, the su- close to the child in the center of the circle. After eating and drinking her fill and exploring the clothing and the blankets, a voice from outside the circle calls, I'm hungry. Another, I'm thirsty. Another, I'm cold. And the child is led out of the circle to share food and drink with the hungry and thirsty and blankets with the cold one. A ceremony, a training, a training of the heart towards compassionate generosity. About seven, 16 or 16 and a half years ago, I was feeding my seven-month-old granddaughter, was feeding her pieces of banana, and at one point she picked pieces of banana that were sitting on the tray of the high chair, picked them up and started stuffing them in my mouth with a lot of delight on her face, generosity, A number of summers ago, forest fires raged in the Los Alamos and Española area near uh, where I, not too far from where I live in Taos, New Mexico. And hundreds of individuals and families were evacuated from their homes. And almost immediately there was enormous outpouring of generosity coming from miles around, clothing, food, all of the ordinary daily life needs, as well as offers of housing, shelter. So much offered freely that at some point we were told that it was time to stop giving, that the needs of all of those suffering because of the fires had been met with great abundance. At some point along the way of your life, maybe not too long ago, you decided you wanted to sit here at the forest refuge. Well, all of the conditions came together. And so you both give the gift of this precious time to yourself and receive the fruits of your practice and the teachings, day by day by day, as your retreat unfolds. So just for a moment now, imagine yourself standing outside your home each morning, holding a large bowl of food. A line of saffron-robed monks is moving slowly, moving gracefully down the road, each of them holding a round begging bowl. As they pass in front of you, you scoop out a portion of the food from your bowl and put it into each of the monk's bowls. Imagine yourself as a child standing with your mother or father or older sister or brother and seeing this ritual, this offering, each morning. Taking in the power of the generous heart so clearly present in this daily practice. Taking in the joy and genuine happiness quite apparent in this purity of giving. The benefits of generosity are easily learned each day. They simply become a very natural part of your life. And from the Buddha, if beings knew as I know the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their gifts without sharing them with others nor would the taint of stinginess obsess the heart and stay there. Even if it was their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it if there was anyone to receive it. The Buddha and his nuns and monks all lived in the same simple way making alms rounds each day for their sustenance. The Buddha taught and lived what is really a way of life. And in speaking to his sangha, he said, Thus you must train yourselves. We shall be thankful and grateful. Not even the least thing that is done for us shall be forgotten. giving and receiving. Generosity, a practice of the heart. Most of us here in this Western world don't have this kind of daily experience, this reminder. The monastic training of the begging bowl isn't so easily available in this country which at least in part is the training, the cultivation of renunciation, gratitude, and the understanding of interdependence that's directly related to the process of simply receiving what's offered in support of a way of life. Now, of course, in a retreat setting like this, we are doing just that with each meal. And we don't regularly engage from the other side either in offering food each day to those who depend on it for their sustenance. And through that process, reap the wholesome benefits of cultivating a light, joyous, and generous heart. As it is for the most part, Our Western culture encourages us to yearn for, thirst for, to acquire and to accumulate, and then to fixate and cling to our accumulations, material accumulations and the accumulations of ideas, opinions and views that support this whole materialistic culture. And then, in turn, we're conditioned by this process to identify ourselves outwardly and inwardly through all of our accumulations and to think and to feel and to project that this is who we are. In light of this very pervasive and quite sticky conditioning, I think that it takes a a certain kind of courage to enter into a spiritual path that encourages us towards seeing, knowing the truth of ourselves, the truth of all things, underneath and beyond all of this training, this conditioning of attachment, clinging, and identification. And a poem regarding this by Naomi Shihab Nye. <clears throat> it's called "Kindness," and this is uh, from her book called *Different Ways to Pray*. From nineteen, it was this was written in nineteen seventy-eight in Colombia. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose everything. Feel the past and the future dissolve in a moment like salt in a weakened bra. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride thinking the bus will never stop, the passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread only kindness that raises its head out of the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. There isn't really anything truly integrated into our Western culture that teaches and deepens us into living the truth of interconnectedness and the essential unsatisfactoriness and emptiness of accumulation. I think that as a culture there's a deep, quite a profound loss in this lack. The practice, the Development of the heart of generosity is the seed, the foundation of spiritual development. Generosity is the ground of love, compassion, and joy, and a requisite towards the realization of liberation. As practice develops and our discerning capacity grows, The mind, the heart learns to see and know the ephemeral, the changing nature of all things. In relationship to our everyday world, what we think of as ours today might be gone tomorrow. Or may seemingly belong to someone else next week. Maybe even in this retreat. My spot in the meditation hall my seat in the dining room my walking path what in this world really belongs to us what can we really truly possess is there anything anything that really has any hard and fast owners everything changes hands, or just simply dissolves. And when we begin to touch this truth, it can be a very powerful factor that inclines inclines us towards cultivating our inner wealth. The inner wealth of qualities such as generosity, compassion, concentration, Mindfulness, patience, loving-kindness, joy, equanimity. An inner wealth of generosity is a very powerful medicine. It's an antidote to the anguish and the confusion that's generated through the conditioned conditioning, the training of accumulating and then fixing on and identifying with all of the material and mental accumulations. Generosity is a natural, healthy, awakened response to the deepening understanding that there's nothing that can be held onto. Nothing in this constantly changing world. Our inner wealth of generosity is a wealth that actually can never be depleted. It's a gift that can forever be given. And it's a seamless circle. It feeds itself. It grows itself. And so from this perspective, as the Buddha tells us, the greatest gift is in the act of giving itself. And there's a, a really wonderful little sutta from the Anguttara The, In English, the translation is The Sutta of Two People. And I'll uh, read it to you. On one occasion, the Buddha was staying near Savati in Jetta's Grove, Anattapindaka's Anatta monastery. Then two Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, a 120 years old, went to the Blessed One. On arrival, they exchanged courteous greetings with him, and after an exchange of friendly greetings and courtesies, sat to one side. As they were sitting there, they said to him, Master Gotama, we are Brahmins, feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life, a 120 years old. And we have done no admirable deeds, no skilful deeds, no deeds that allay our fears. Teach us, Master Gotama. Instruct us, Master Gotama, for our long-term benefit and happiness. And the Buddha says, Indeed, Brahmins, you are feeble old men, aged, advanced in years, having come to the last stage of life 120 years old. You have done no admirable deeds, no skillful deeds, no deeds that allay your fears. And then he recites this poem. When a house is on fire, the vessel salvaged is the one that will be of use, not the one left there to burn. So when the world is on fire with aging and death, one should salvage one's wealth by giving what's given is well salvaged, said the Buddha. (laughs) Traditionally, in the Buddhist teachings, three kinds of giving are spoken of. There's what could be called beggarly giving, which is when we give with only one hand, so to say, still holding on to what we give. It's still mine. Kind of how I first began uh, giving my young Chinese friend my bracelet. And in this kind of giving, we might give the least of what we have, and then afterwards we might even wonder whether we should have given at all. The second kind of giving could be called friendly giving. And we give open-handedly with both hands. We share what we have because it feels natural and appropriate to, a, a natural and appropriate thing to do. It's a clear giving. And then there's what could be called queenly or kingly giving. And this is when we give the best of what we have, even if none remains for ourselves. We give instinctively. We give graciously. We know ourselves, in fact, to be only temporary caregivers of whatever has been provided. We know ourselves as owning nothing. In this, we could say there's no real giving. It's not really giving. There's just the spaciousness which allows objects and our caring heart to remain in the natural flow of life. This is really the true heart of generosity. A century Buddhist monk, Shanti Shantideva, said, Others are my main concern. When I notice something of mine, I steal it and give it to others. There's nothing to be held onto to in this knowing of the perfectly natural, empty flow of life. In understanding the way of things, the heart of generosity quite naturally blossoms. And from Desmond Tutu from South Africa, Africans believe in something that is difficult to render in English. We call it Ubuntu It means the essence of being human. You know when it's there and when it's absent. It speaks about humanness, gentleness, generosity, hospitality, putting yourself out on behalf of others, being vulnerable. It embraces compassion and toughness. It recognizes that my humanity is bound up in yours for we can only be human together. And as we all well know, we don't always give with the purity and completeness of queenly or kingly generosity. This is at least in part One of the reasons why we practice. Something that I think is quite important to remember throughout our practice is to remember to really be honest with ourselves, to honor and respect your capacity of heart at any given point along the way, and not to pretend anything to yourself or to others by imitating or acting out of some idealized image that you might have of a generous, compassionate, loving person. It's important to recognize, honor, and respect your limits along the way and to come from a really genuine place of heart. Sometimes we might think that we're acting out of generosity, acting out of unconditional kindness and compassion. When in fact, we're acting maybe out of a fear of loss or a fear of disapproval or a fear of some degree or of maybe a harsh verbal or physical reaction. Or sometimes we might give from the place of really trying to avoid dealing directly with a particular person or a particular situation. Giving in this way actually perpetuates fear. It perpetuates delusion. It strengthens the heart, the closed heart of self-centeredness and the closed heart of disconnection, which in turn then continues our suffering, our own suffering, and maybe also the suffering of another. And we might be creating what in modern language is called codependency rather than cultivating the truth of a healthy and vital connection to others and the unfolding of the wisdom of interconnectedness and not self that the quality of generosity very naturally springs from It may be that you don't yet have the feeling of a simple okayness. Just a simple okayness about being here. Meaning an okayness about being alive in this life. Just simply because here you are, alive in this life. And without this we can experience... Some degree of a pervasive, undifferentiated feeling of disconnection, a feeling of separateness, a sense of an inner lack. If we don't yet feel the strength within us of wholeness and this simple okayness, this really needs to be respected. Otherwise, giving, sharing, and caring might be done with a subtle and often unconscious sense of getting something in return. When our heart hasn't yet healed from the learned, from the conditioned feeling of lack, there may be some misunderstanding in relationship to the truth of generosity. We might give ourselves away or lose ourselves, so to say, in an unhealthy way, in what seems like generous support, but which may actually be unskillful giving, unskillful support of others. When this happens, we actually feel less whole. We feel more depleted. We feel weaker, which is sometimes accompanied by a lack of awareness, an ignorance, of the real needs of others, along with a lack of awareness and ignorance of our own needs. It's important to understand, respect, and really honor in ourself and in others that the wisdom of a deep and true generosity develops and matures gradually. Our inclination to intuitively feel and know our wholeness, our okayness, which translates in part as experiencing our true nature on the relative level of life and includes an intuitive sensing of interconnectedness. And our inclination to feel and manifest the generosity and the compassion that naturally springs from this are really perfectly natural inclinations. And our inclination to touch and to know the freedom that's naturally inherent in deeply understanding the impermanent, unsatisfactory, and not-self nature of things is a perfectly natural inclination as well. I think that for many of us, at least one or maybe all of these inclinations are some of the deepest reasons that we're drawn to practice. And looking at the practice of generosity from another perspective for a moment. There's a practice that a, a Tibetan teacher told me about very basic practice for people who are extremely stingy, miserly people. People who sometimes identify themselves as being fiercely independent. This sort of person often has trouble giving even to themselves and might not be able to ask for help or to receive, to receive it graciously when and if it's offered receiving help gifts praise even love can be difficult for people like this they might not have the open-heartedness to give or to receive with gratitude joy appreciation kindness even if they're physically sick or distressed emotionally so the practice for this a problem <laughs> is to take something very ordinary, something that one might not think of as particularly valuable, something like a potato or maybe a turnip, and you hold it in one hand, and then you pass it to the other hand, and then you pass it back again, and back again, hand to hand to hand to hand until it gets easy and you don't feel silly and ridiculous. You're just doing this practice. (laughs) It really is a practice that's done. (laughs) And then there are the higher practices. If one's motivated and inclined to continue the practice of generosity uh, and relinquishment, we could say, one moves on to seemingly more valuable objects, either metaphorically or literally. And the giving symbolically develops into letting go of, into relinquishing, offering everything. All of the accumulations, the outer material accumulations, the inner accumulations of habits and preferences and ideas and beliefs, etc., and one is even encouraged to relinquish the secret holdings. And the practice is done in its final stage, ideally with amount of precious jewels that are symbolically offered over and over and over again to the Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha, and to all beings everywhere. Maybe some of you have done this practice. At one point I did do this practice, But instead of precious jewels, the rice was the offering. And actually that felt quite appropriate to be offering rice. And really this is what we're doing here in our practice without the paraphernalia. Learning to give and learning to receive. Letting go of control And receiving what's given, receiving each moment of our life just as it is, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, with the trust that it's just right, just enough for our spiritual growth to unfold from. We can give ourselves the gift of really, truly learning to be in the present moment with a kind and open heart, with the clear focused, mindful awareness. Receiving the present moment just as it is with gratitude, appreciation, humility, equanimity. With unconditional acceptance, we learn to apply the wise and careful attention of a concentrated, mindful awareness. In the midst of any exchange any relationship, any emotional state, any sensation that moves through the body, to any task we might be engaged in, to the experience of a breath from its birth all the way through to its death. We're learning to receive life fully, be kind, grateful, generous, knowing that this very life, this very life, is our path to the deepest ease of well-being and joy, and that this very life, this path in this very life is intimately connected to to the development of a deep generosity of heart. Someone once asked Gandhi, a bodhisattva of our time, why do you give so much? Why do you serve all of these people? And maybe surprisingly, Gandhi answered, I don't give to anyone. I do it all for myself. In truth, the aim and the fruit of generosity is twofold. We give to help and to free others, and we give to help and to free ourselves. This is the fullness, the seamless circle of generosity. And through our practice, the energy of it grows and flows within us and from us. And we begin to know it and live it quite naturally as who we are. And closing the talk this evening with one last story. About 33 years ago, along with my interest in Buddhism, I had a Native American teacher named Wallace Black Elk. And once or twice a year he would uh, come to the area in Michigan where I lived to teach us. And one year I invited him to come and to stay in my house when he was coming to teach that year a small, very old, five-room log house out in the Michigan woods. And at that point, just one of my sons uh, and I were living in that house together. Well, the summer afternoon of Wallace's arrival came. An old, very well-used, small car pulled up in the driveway, and Wallace was the first one to get out. And he's quite a big man, about six foot three inches tall, and very big boned, and looked even bigger uh, in his boots and his tall cowboy hat. And then it was like one of those cars in the circus that pull up in the center ring, and the doors open, and people just keep pouring out of it.